This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay. <laughs> well, good evening and welcome once more. Again, I'm Patrice Petro, and I'm here tonight with Eli Atta, writer and producer of The West Wing. I'm David Mendel, executive producer, writer, and director of Veep. We're here to talk about these two iconic uh, episodes and the shows themselves and how they engage with changing notions of television, uh, politics, and public. So let me begin. Okay, this is for both of you, and I don't know how we're going to work this out, but I somehow, I, knowing you... It's going to be very do, organized. Yes, yeah. it's going to be very organized. It's been, I wanted to start with a question that I, I'll end with as well, but it's become a commonplace to compare West Wing and Veep um, to underscore their differences. I've, I've read scholars, I've read commentators, and, and the argument goes something like this. The West Wing is unrealistically idealistic in its view of government, while Veep is unrelent, unrelenting in its satiric portrait of governmental incompetence and corruption. So I want to shift away from this view, to at least to start, to, say, to ask you both, what do you think the two shows share in common? You know, I, I think that. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, no, you know, it's a funny thing because I love Veep. Uh, when I first I worked in the real White House, and and then I ended up kind of through a, a random chain of events working on the the TV show The West Wing. And what I loved about it at first was that um, so much of popular culture up to that point had depicted people who worked in White Houses, people who ran the country as these kind of bloodless, craven tacticians, the really cynical and dark, um, and you know, sort of without any humanity. And that wasn't my experience working in government, working in the White House. And more, the West Wing is obviously a bit of a Capra-esque, you know, sort of utopian fantasy, but the idea that most people in government are, are trying to do what they think is the right thing and struggling with that and decent people, I think that resonated with me and I think that's true to my experience. But the thing about Veep is that, to me, there's a big difference between, say, Veep and House of Cards. I think there's a lot of humanity in Veep. And I think that, that I watch... Almost it. like the human failures, but well, still humanity. Yes, yes but, yes. but, I, but I, I care about the characters. And one of the, thing that was, one of the things that was so interesting to me about the series finale, when I saw it, is that you, it was surprising to me how much emotion I felt for the end of these characters' stories because you spend so much time kind of laughing at them, uh, seeing them you know, be opportunistic and cynical, but you see so much of their damage, you see so much of what has made them the way that they are. I, I think that's what the shows have in common to me, is that they have a lot of humanity. And you know, one, you know, one show focuses on how that goes wrong and another focuses on how that goes right. But I think you really care about the characters in both shows. Um, one thing I was going to say is I certainly don't think Veep, and I don't know if this answers the question and I'll get to more of the answer, but I don't think Veep exists if the West Wing doesn't come first. I think Veep is allowed because the West Wing sort of, I think, taught people that first lesson, which is that these are real people. Um, in the sense of, you know, again, if you were watching stuff before that, whether it was a bad sci-fi movie, whether it was the president and his staff or whatever, but I think sort of the West Wing showed like what it was and taught us like, oh, this is this person, this is, a, the, this is what a chief of staff does. And, like we learned lessons from the West Wing and then that allowed Veep to sort of, sort of run amok, but because those lessons exist. Um, 
Um, I do think, obviously, there's just that general sense of they share that, you know, we're, we're peering behind the curtain, we're seeing things we're not supposed to see. And I just think Veep is the other side of the coin, which is, look, I think every time I met someone in D.C., they basically would would say, sometimes in a good way, like, she's the Amy in my office, or right. I'm the Amy. And right. they meant that in a good way. And then they would go, I work with a guy who's the Jonah. And you just start to go, there are a lot of people, and you know, you meet them in D.C. who simply define themselves solely by who they work for and their, for lack of a better word, proximity to power. And so... I think that's where Veep started with that group of people, the people perhaps that you don't want to have drinks with after, uh, after right. the day ends. Yeah. But they start in a very similar place, and I agree. I, yeah. I think also, the, you know, the thing I would add also, and that's so true, is that um, the West Wing evolved, and I think, you know, obviously it had the first four seasons when, you know, Aaron Sorkin, you know, the sort of auteur of the show, ran it and was there and and even even as he stayed the sh- you know when he was still there the show was evolving and getting maybe a little bit less utopian and wrestling with some darker choices and you know I think we went further in that direction after he um left the show there's a there's a world in which the west wing had it you know been on the air for 20 seasons you know, might have started to approach deep territory. Not in that it would have been a comedy, but that we'd done all of the sort of... Right. We'd done the glossy side But you of guys Washington. definitely embraced, I mean, in those final seasons, when I told this to Eli at the time, and we've known each other a while now, um, but going into the final season of Veep, and in particular the final episode with our brokered convention, I rewatched all of the, the, the sort of the Sorkinless Matt Santos seasons, which culminate in a brokered convention. And I was doing it both, again, some of it was... Well, what do people know? What have people seen? So there was a little bit of that. Like, what's the common dialogue, if you will? What are, the, what, are, what are people familiar with? I wanted to see what you guys did, what it looked like. Dare I say, sometimes I look to see, well, they did the straight version of that. I could do right. a funny version of that. You know, that kind of a thing. But um, what was really interesting in the final season was kind of how gray it got. And what I mean yes. by that is Santos isn't perfect. In certainly not in the way Jed Bartlett was. He may not be right on all these things. He may, he occasionally bends in a way that Bartlett does. And by the way, um, uh, Alan Alda as uh, Vinick, right? That's his name? Right. Vin- as yes, Vinick is also not just the, the sort of like bad guy of Republicans past on West Wing. And it got kind of interesting because it got kind of messy and it wasn't necessarily that he was the best candidate. He was simply maybe the candidate that was interesting, but it got definitely kind of messy. And I think with Selena, one of the things that we always try and do is, as incompetent as her staff often is, and as as sort of sometimes her, I guess her, I guess desire for power gets her into trouble, there are moments where we definitely try and remind you what a tough street fighter she is that got her at least to the vice presidency initially that show that there is a there is an inherent competency there dare i say and i don't i'm not looking to invoke the trump of it all but you know those moments where you go jesus he's good at this part of the game she has her skills and i think that's what makes her 
and makes the show. And again, I didn't create it. Armando did. So sort of a similar situation for sort of our runs on the show, sort of post, well, you were with your creator. Yes. But both of us sort of in the post-creator Absolutely. world of it. But very much like it, what makes her, I think, real and human and interesting is some of her is good. It could be used for good. She just doesn't. Anyway. Well, you know, if you, as you said, if, if you have Veep because we had the West Wing, um, and I understand that many of the West Wing storylines uh, were based on, Eli, your own experiences um, in politics. But Veep is not a real-world political show. It's rather, as you've described it, David, you said it's politically inspired. And, I mean, partially that's because people were always making comparisons with the Trump administration. You'd have to say sure. the, show, the show started long before that. But can you both say more about how the, the, your show's relationship to the political realities of their respective moments? Because I think, and even how the final season of Veep is different than... Well, what that's the thing. I mean, I sort of, I, I almost have like a two-part answer. I can go with one part, and Eli can go, and I can give the second part. It's sort of like, I, I worked on two completely different shows, even though I did Veep. I did two seasons, I guess for lack of a better word, of Veep pre-Trump, and then I did a season of Veep during Trump that ended up being at first almost during Trump. And then when Julia got cancer and we pushed, it was in the heart of Trump. And they are two very completely different shows. Um, you know, one the, the first two seasons, you know, like any, I guess I'll say sitcoms that I've worked on, like Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm, where you do take little gems of real things and then you, you spin them into something bigger and funnier and better. And you know, I think we definitely would hit upon things, but if you look at like our first, my first season of Veep, you know, we, it was the Electoral College tie, which was something, you know, I feel like every year people talk about never quite happens. But again, it was something that every four years, it was something people were learning about. Um, and then we kind of did our version of a recount thing, but that, even at that point, that was, you know, years old. And so we were always kind of like, you know, plucking little bits and pieces of history and interesting books. And we would have a lot of people like, uh, and Eli came in too. We would have people for, who worked in White Houses and staffs and stuff come in. And we would, you know, like, like you know, you garden. You pick a little from here, you pick a little there, whatever. It was great. And then the Trump thing and the show became this entire other thing because, you know, so much of the show was, what's it like behind the closed doors? The closed doors were gone. What if, can you imagine a world where this is how the president talks in private when no one hears? Well, that, that, that went out the window. So all of what Veep was, and by the way, if you look at old episodes, it seems like, it seems quaint. It seems like season two of Veep looks like it's from the 1800s. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it almost feels out of touch. It's so different because of how, again, like him or hate him, hate him, um, it, <laughs> Politics has changed. And so for me, it was two very different things. The second one being quite unenjoyable, quite unpleasant, and ultimately why we ended the show, basically. Well, it's funny. I, uh, you know, we have known each other for a long time. And, and I was, um, just by chance, working in the same building yes. as the Veep writers on another project. I was on the first floor. David was on the second floor. And I was there during, I guess, both iterations yes. of your last season. Because the Veep writers were working on what would have been the final season, and then Julia had to take time off, and then they sort of regrouped, and I would wander up there, uh, and I would remember you guys kind of ripping your hair out and throwing out all the scripts. and, and uh... There was a moment, and it was basically, I guess I'll say, um, so he gets sworn in in... Uh... 
uh, January of 2017, right? That's, that's right, right? Yes, that's, okay. right. that's right. And our season was airing then, the season we had written. And then that June, we started writing the show. So now we're kind of in the first couple, six months of his presidency. And we were about two or three weeks away from shooting the first episode in September of 2017. So again, nine months into his presidency, um, when Julia got cancer and we shut down. And basically... In 2018 is when Julia got the all clear, and I knew, I always knew we were going to come back, but obviously hearing that she was healthy was obviously a wonderful thing. Um, and we kind of knew we were coming back, and right in 2018, it, after he gave his sort of State of the Union that year, he really started to like feel comfortable in the job. And I remember there, you know, all the, st- the st- statistical stuff in the Washington Post where like, you know, the, the lies per day, the lies per week, like triple. Like he just started to like, he got comfortable in the office and it really got worse. And our stuff, I just remember looking at what we had, what we had planned, and it didn't, it, it started to really not seem relevant. And I'll be very honest, the show got way meaner and way crueler because it just had to. And as it was, we were three steps ahead, sometimes one step ahead. There's an episode... Um, where, uh, sorry, this is such a long answer. There's an episode, the second to last episode, so right before the finale, where Jonah is in Florida and his father has died. And he's, no, he's not in Florida. I don't know where he was, but his father has died um, after they've reunited. Sorry, spoilers. And uh, he's angry and he's giving a speech on immigration. And we'd had this sort of runner where somebody in his audience kept yelling out, kill her, whenever he brought, like he'd say, mention Selena, and there you'd hear a voice go, kill her, and he'd kind of go, well, I don't know about that, and then it happened again, and he got to immigrants, and he was announcing his policy, which I remember, if I remember correctly, which I loved, was nobody in, nobody out, that was his, uh, <laughs> that was his policy, um, and he's talking about immigrants, and the, the crowd guy yells, kill them. And he goes, well, not all of them. There are some good, you know, there are some good immigrants. And then he starts naming good immigrants. And he names like a guy that, like a guy that made a really tasty, like, I don't know, taco for him. But then he also names like Venus and Serena Williams. He thinks they're immigrants. Anyway, it's really horrible. This airs on a Sunday night. That Wednesday, Trump is in Florida. He mentions immigrants, and a guy in his crowd actually yells out, shoot them, and he laughs at it and kind of is like, well, we can't do that. You guys in Florida are great. And you're just like, what the f*** is going on? At that point, I guess had we not ended, that would have been the end. But luckily, I guess that was the end. Anyway, sorry, a very long answer. here's Here's an analog to that story which is uh, a a capsule in time. I I started on the West Wing in season three of that show, and uh, we had maybe written about five or six episodes when September 11th happened. And this is how long ago that was. And uh, that day, all the studio lots were shut down. There was sort of panic everywhere in the world. And I think the next day, we all came back into the office. I just have to interrupt and just say, by the way, only in Los Angeles, the studios were very concerned that the studios were going to be targeted. So for like the next two years, they would search under our cars because such is the Hollywood ego that this was where, this is where they were coming for us. Well, Sorry, all, my, yeah. all my Beverly Hills cousins at the time <laughs> thought that the Century City Mall was the next target. So it's all, it's all relative. Yep. But, but, uh, but Aaron Sorkin came in the next day, uh, September 12th, 
and um, all the writers were sitting around. We weren't working, and he said, I don't think we should do the show anymore. Um, and he said, I just think, maybe it was a day later. It might, have been, it might have been two days after September 11th, but he was saying, you know, the things we do on the show, which is basically Democrats and Republicans sniping at each other, it just seems petty now. Like the country's united. We sort of have this one purpose, and how can we, you know, do a show with sort of petty grievances and, you know, making fun of Republican congressmen? You know, I know a week later that was appropriate again, unfortunately, but <laughs> it's, just the, it's just the other side of the coin. But, but I mean, you know, broader answer, that was a show that was created during the, you know, Bill Clinton's presidency, but most of it, you know, was created and ran during the Bush presidency. But it didn't change. I mean, some of the issues changed that the show covered, but I think it very quickly became its own. It just was a wish fulfillment show. It was just imagine if these are the people in the building that is running the country, and if you could feel this good about them and see, you know, what was going on, you know, not the 90 seconds on CNN. But I do think there is something to the oppositeness and that you were a very hopeful show during a lot of those Bush years, which were, again, to perhaps our, us, I guess yeah, I can only speak sure. for us, I can't speak for the audience, but right. for those of us who didn't care for the Bush administration, yeah. having this hopeful example was sort of fun and nice and, and actually very heartening. And I would argue in a world of, I guess, liking Obama, it almost was kind of like, it's okay to pretend that these Veep people are in the White House because they're not in the White House. And it was only when it flips that you just go, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't yeah. want to live in my show. And that's what it feels like. And on a daily basis, somebody tweets me, or just in general, something that happens somewhere in D.C. that they slap the Veep music on, or yeah. this is Veep, or this is Veep, or that is Veep. And they're not wrong, and it's worse and worse. Yeah, that's. Well, let me just yeah. follow up a little bit on the historical question here, or the relationship between the shows and their political moments. I mean, you, you've talked about, and I've read interviews with you, David, where you're talking about, um, you know, the interest in the show, or, or in the West Wing, behind the curtain, behind the scenes. You started by saying, you know, you hear how presidents really talk, not when the tapes are released right. from Nixon, and you hear how what he really thinks. Um, and yet, two weeks ago, uh, we had Dick Wolf here, and he was talking, he, he, for the first 10 minutes or so, he was very adamant about, he said, television has changed more in the past five years than it has in the last 40 years, okay? And then you're just saying now that, in a sense, you know, that the, in politics, the last three years, four years, have just been a kind of anomalous. Um, and I wonder if you would comment a bit more, like I was watching the two shows and you're thinking about just the two shows we watched tonight, and I was thinking about um, what's also changed in the last four or five years. I mean, just social media and Twitter and more communication, and so that the whole idea that anything could be behind the curtain becomes tougher anyways because there's so much... There's so much right. uh, conversation. You know, we're not on the plane where they're rolling the orange. Um, you know, communication is happening much faster, and all kinds of things are being said. So, you know, uh, so I'm wondering it's about... It's an orange emoji. <laughs> it's an orange. It's, it's... Wait, go with this. <laughs> sorry. No, I'm sorry. He's got... <laughs> no, but I, I'm wondering, you know, when we think about, 
you know, do you agree that television has changed more in the past five years than the last 40? And secondly, do you think that, um, that it's not just the shows and it's not just the politics and it's not just the players, but it's the amplification of the way that talk around politics has changed? You know, in answer to the first part of that question, um, I don't know if anybody in this audience has ever listened to Speed Metal. I don't listen to Speed Metal. But a friend of mine uh, a few years ago was sort of giving me his Speed Metal theory of news cycles in politics, oh, okay. which is this. If you do listen to Speed Metal, uh, it's so fast that it's actually, it actually sounds slow. You can't even hear something that's being played that fast. So it just becomes a kind of a swampy sort of mush. <laughs> and so this friend of mine was saying that we're at a point now where it's a constant news cycle. I mean, there is no 6 o'clock news and, you know, the morning newspaper. Uh, and so many things happen in the course of a day that in a way, all you take away from it are the two or three things you would have taken away from a news cycle in 1978. That's the theory. I think that's by and large true. I think social media has had a big and toxic role in, um, you know, amping up, you know, the, the sort of louder voices and the more extreme voices and giving a forum and an echo chamber to people on the far left and on the far right, and that's been a destructive thing. Um, uh, and, and, and in terms of TV, I think also it's, it's the delivery mechanisms have changed, and, and, and so certain kinds of storytelling are possible that weren't possible before, but... I don't know. I guess I believe that at the end of the day, I'm not sure I, I do think that's true, that, that, that interesting stories are still interesting stories and they just find different ways of being delivered. I guess to talk about the, the changes in TV, I mean, I, I do think, look, obviously at the end of the day, I think an interesting story will find its way. But I think there are now certainly, just in these last couple of years, the opportunity, obviously, and I don't think this is a, a brave statement, but you certainly can get more niche and therefore... Like what might be an interesting story to only me and say you, that might be enough to get one of the smaller places to roll the dice on it. Whereas, as opposed to like it has to be a big tent idea. So I do think that possibility and then just the sheer amount of the stuff out there so that if you're not paying a lot of attention... I mean, I'm sure it happens to you where, you know, a couple of times a week someone mentions a show and I just go, what is that? And then just the realization that people are watching it differently so that there are people that are watching it every week when it airs. There are people watching it later in the week when they can. People that even if it's not all put out at once, wait till they can watch it all because they only want to see it if they like it and can whatever. And it's definitely changing you know, again, I think we're losing that sort of sense of, you know, like the way, again, I, 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 back in my, my first job in L.A. was Seinfeld, and certainly I can remember sort of the moment of, like, being in line. By the way, this is just dating me left and right. Being in line to buy movie tickets. Um, so an actual line at a theater that I didn't pre-buy because you couldn't or whatever. And hearing people on a Friday night talking about Thursday night Seinfeld episode. That is, there was something very quaint to that. Obviously, mm -hmm. there is the Twitter equivalent. But, you know, as you put it, often the craziest, like, loudest voice gets almost sort of equal weight. Um, you know, in terms of the politics of it all, I have no good answer. <laughs> I mean, it just, uh, that same sort of, you almost feels like even if people were trying to cooperate, it would get undermined by Twitter in a weird way. I, I know that's very cynical, but I unfortunately feel that way. Yeah, well, both episodes are also about, you know, 
and television breaking through with new revelations, right. often the same revelations of sexual harassment. Or, sure, but by the um, way, actually quite false. Really only done because the medium that I'm showing you is TV. And the quite honest answer was, all of that stuff in that episode really probably should have just broken on Twitter, that someone would have announced on Twitter that there was a press conference coming, right. that it was going to be Tom James's chief of staff with allegations of this thing, and that they were going to be going live, but that that news would have hit him and his... I mean, actually, that would have all hit him and his people differently. It's not the most visual medium, obviously. I mean, we're, right. we're, we're obviously looking to play something, but even in that sense, sort of false. Well, this is probably the least grounded thing about both shows for all their meticulous kind of production design and everything else that, that if you were really doing I've got two but go ahead well one is yeah. that everybody would just be hunch over a computer or their phone all day every day I mean there'd be nothing to shoot it would be they'd be the least right. they don't quite walk shows. around as much but right. I was going to say the two are one the White House is a sh like uh, like, like it, it is really like I wished we had I, I, I did not do the initial production design and I wished we could have reestablished, yeah. like, just the way the desks and the piles of things. Like, I right. was quite taken by that when I first got to actually go to the real West Wing. Um, and number two, all of these people, whether they were fired or quit, would have left the administration after, like, two or three years. Like, no one, no one, right. no one lasts in an administration exactly eight right. years. They would have yeah. moved on and, yeah, and found other jobs and everybody that would have been surrounding. We, the sort of notion at the end there where Selena is surrounded by all new people was sort of a vague nod to it, but the real truth is she would have been surrounded by all new people that were, like, 26 years old. That's the oh, real answer. Oh, back yeah. when we were doing the West Wing, um, I think at that time the average... White House staff person's tenure in the building was about 18 months. Uh, it's such a, such a high burnout place. And if you made it four years, that was considered right, like extraordinary. Yeah. In this White House, in the Trump White House, I mean, was the Six weeks, there yeah, for... Exactly, yeah. Was he there for a week, even? Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, poof, gone. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that you say that about... It would have been great to have done Veep with, with, a, with a more realistic, grittier a White, White House, House set. Yes. Because... The West Wing was, as you know, a very, a, a very glamorized White House set, partly because the building is also so cramped and narrow and unvisual. And uh, I think the, the original producing director, this Tommy Schlamme, of that show knew that, especially the way that Aaron Sorkin wrote, it was, it was just people talking. And how was he going to dramatize that world? How was he going right. to show kind of dynamism and action and movement? And his idea was to put windows everywhere so that you could always see three layers back and see people walking and movement. And in, you know, in actual fact, anywhere you would be in the West Wing, you would see nothing further than six inches away. I mean, if you watch a Veep episode, again, we took this from the West Wing. So, I mean, again, it sort of defines these things in a weird way, like the invention of the walk and talk. Right. But basically, if you watch an episode, especially when Selena was the president, if you actually just, like, turn the volume off and watch what is happening, she's walks into the Oval, walks out of the Oval and walks to the Roosevelt, yeah. leaves the Roosevelt, walks back to the right. Oval, leaves the Oval, walks back to the Roosevelt. Like, they don't, presidents don't, do, I mean, I'm sure they do do this, but yeah, it's just much. fake movement to at least kind of give you a sense of something. But again, it's just, I guess uh, it's okay. That's but It's funny, yeah. <laughs> well, just uh, shifting back to something I started with, you know, the West Wing, is, as I said at the opening, has been described as a valentine to public service. 
And there was a long piece, maybe you saw it in the New York Times in the late, late December, talking about the continued the intense popularity that, of the West Wing and the podcast and people, especially in our current era, just wanting to binge watch the West Wing or to return to it, to have faith that, uh, that you know. And by the way, I think that speaks to that opposite thing that I was talking about. Like I, I, I said somewhere, I don't remember who asked me, but I sort of said, it was time for Veep to end, and in, and in my own mind, I wish somebody would do sort of West Wing 2.0, like with a sort of like what, what things should be. I mean, I, I don't yeah. know well, They had say, various yeah. quotes from various fans of the show or people saying, you know, the president should be watching this. He, he doesn't even have a fifth grade you know, education about how government works. Or, and other people, I, when I get so despondent, if I just turn and watch, it gives me hope. And yet, you know, uh, Veep is celebrated precisely for its depiction of the ill will, the poisonous nature of politics that supposedly people want to escape to the West Wing, but they also like Veep. So I, I wanted, you know, it's precisely that, that people want to watch it because it seems... But I will say there are a lot of people I know, and it is just one of these things where I know people that just said, I'm sorry, I can't watch it anymore. It's not funny to me anymore. That's just true. Um, And, you know, I'll give you an example. The first episode of the year uh, of the the final season of Veep, um, uh, which was written by uh, Lou Morton, um, and I directed it. And basically... the Iowa episode? Yes. it uh, It was her. It starts off with a real story that we actually got from uh, a couple of the Pod Save America guys, uh, Tommy Vitor, who had been in charge of uh, Iowa for Obama. Or not in charge, but was like the number two in Iowa, I believe. Uh, I can't remember the name of the the main guy. Mm. But anyway, um, and they landed at the wrong airport. That's a real story. And I remember the moment he told us that story in the room, and I just basically was just like, well, that's that's how we're going to start our season. So that that was that. Um, But in the episode... There are multiple shootings. There, are, there is a runner, which is there are multiple like, mass shootings, one more horrible than the next. And they keep, at first, inconveniencing her. They screw like, something up. They don't let her get her, her jamba juice. Like, it's sort of, at first, they're an inconvenience. And then a mass shooting ends up sort of bailing her out of a situation where her uh, presidential announcement kind of gets screwed up. And by the time you get to the end, and uh, I was watching some behind-the-scene footage that I forgot we had filmed at one point or another. And it's a shot of, like, Tony Hale pulling me aside going, this is really dark. And I'm kind of laughing, going, no, I know, I know. Because basically, the, the shooting bails them out. And she goes, oh, my God. And just sort of very off the cuff goes, remind me to send that shooter a, a gift basket. And then... Uh, uh, Sam Richardson as uh, Richard Splett basically on his, uh, by the way, using Twitter or whatever, goes, uh, uh, okay, ma'am, I'll do that. Oh, sorry, looks like he killed himself. You know what? I can sell it. I can send it to his wife. Oh, he murdered her first. And I mean, it's, it's brutal. I, I admit it. But it, 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 it just, it had to be. But that ain't everybody's cup of tea. That's my cup of tea. But I, there were people that just went, that's where you lost me. And I go, okay, now... That's a fair thing. If you're going, you just don't want to laugh at that. I have no problem with that. I find, I find that the horror of it makes the point. And again, I'm not looking to debate that. There were some people who were like, you can't do that. And I was like, I'll stop doing it when you, st- when you stop the shootings. That's not the point of this story. But it, it just like, we got dark. It got dark. And there are people that just went, I think I'm done. Like, it's not the... The, the unfortunate, I guess I'll simply say, as the show 
the final season related more to what was going on. For some people, they didn't want that tie-in, that it got, I don't know, too close to home, too close to the evening news, and they turned it off. And I knew that was a risk going in, and I certainly wouldn't have done five more seasons like that, but I guess for a final season, I felt like it was the only way we could kind of keep going and end. But I do think there were people that just went, no. And I, anyway, that was sort of my point. You know, one of the, uh, in defense of Veep, which I love, uh, uh, not, that, not that the showrunner of Veep <laughs> is attacking it, but one of the things that I think is so great yeah. about that <laughs> is that it's, you know, these, it, it's showing you the pressures that lead to bad choices in politics. You know, and that these are three-dimensional people who are trying to get through a day where they're trying to advocate a position or hold a press conference or launch a campaign, and then the world kind of creeps in. And you don't necessarily have the time in that life to stop for a moment of solemn you know, prayer or whatever else it is. And in a weird way, I think we were often trying to do that in the later seasons of The West Wing, too, to show how do things happen in politics and government that we don't like. They're, they're real people and sometimes decent people making those bad choices, but their back's up against the wall, and here's why. So I guess I always felt, even in those dark, bleak moments on Veep, maybe I was in some of those moments myself, so I just felt for them. This may not have been as dark and maybe as school shootings, but I distinctly remember, and not just from when I rewatched it, I remember from when it aired originally, you know, when it was just on TV, um, uh, when they went to Iowa and they had the whole thing with the... uh, the tax on the fuel. Uh, ethanol. The ethanol. Yeah, the ethanol, right. like, do I support yes, it and do right. I not support it? And I just, I, rem- I to this day, I mean, maybe not perfectly, but I remember that episode and the sort of the notion of your best intentions versus the political realities. And again, I'm not saying that it's exactly the same, but they're, right. again, these connections. Yeah. It's to, a similar, you know, I yeah. think it is the similar. I mean, you know, the, the reality is that, it, you know, to accurately depict what life is like on a campaign, you would need to splice the two shows together. Yeah, I think they would answer. need to mate and have a child, and that would be the <laughs> accurate TV but show. But I will about say politics. this, and again, I, I know he was a dumb, silly character in a wonderful way. Although in some ways he was maybe the smartest character in the show. But one of the things, I, one of the reasons I think Richard Splett, Sam's character, pops so much in the later years is. I think he genuinely, you know, almost probably watched the West Wing as a kid. That character, as far as I'm concerned, watched the West Wing as a kid and genuinely still believes in the power of government to affect lives in kind of a Lyndon Johnson great society, not Lyndon Johnson Vietnam kind of way. Um, and And I think that that energy into our show actually made the show more interesting because... You didn't just, everybody wasn't just black as night. It was all of a sudden you had these sort of like, this guy loves government right. and believes in it. And I think some of that actually really helped. So a little West Wing in our sort of uh, Veep world. I love yeah. that character. So let's talk about the episodes we watched tonight. Let's start with La Palabra, giving your word the word. So, um, yeah, <laughs> could you tell us more about why you wanted to examine what? If, drawn from your own experience, or what made you want to examine the complicated personal and political issues facing a candidate, of, a presidential candidate of color, and why that was important in 2005? Well, for um, you, as a, as yeah, a, you know, it wasn't initially a decision I, you know, made myself. 
but John Wells, who took over the show from Aaron Sorkin in the later years and, and um, you know, was the head writer at that point, at the beginning of season six, I guess this was season six, at the beginning of this season, he introduced the idea to all of us and, you know, for discussion and to see what we thought of it about you know, running the next campaign to succeed Martin Sheen's character on the show and yeah. the idea of a, of a, of a minority campaign. Well, basically, the, the, the conversation began... You know, with us talking about what would be the next thing coming in politics, what would be the sort of next wave where maybe the show could be ahead of the culture, and um, and I don't remember if it was it may just have been John's idea or it may have been something we got to through discussion, but the idea, and this is a very California centric idea, I think in a way that a Latino candidate might be the first sort of non-white male candidate to be to be a viable national candidate who would be elected president. Of course, that hasn't happened, and we've had you know, female nominees, and we've had an African-American president. But once we committed Wait, to that idea... We did? We, yes, believe it or not. When was that? Um, <laughs> you know, he failed at everything. He wasn't a citizen. Oh, okay, good, 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 good. Gotcha. Uh, Never mind. Okay, I'm, I remember that guy. Twitter? He was a disaster. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so this particular episode... I was very interested. Well, you know, I, I'm I'm a white male. You know, I, I, it wasn't that I so much had a personal connection to to this idea of this character, but I wrote a lot of episodes for that character, particularly in that season. And um, I think I was very interested in the idea of a uh, you know sort of a candidate of color trying to be post racial mm-hmm. and being torn between not wanting to be defined by their race and also a sense of responsibility to their race. And, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that informed this character a lot for me, and I, you know, uh, wrote a lot of big storylines for this character in that season, were conversations that I had that year with David Axelrod, who was just starting to work with Barack Obama, who was just still at that point running for the Senate, although he was already a rock star and it was kind of assured that he was going to win, because we were having trouble finding Latino candidates on a national level who seemed like a good model. So so even some things that were in that episode were inspired by things that David Axelrod had told me about his experience with Barack Obama, just about how he tried to not be defined by his race. He was proud of his race, but he almost felt he couldn't represent it properly if he, was, if he was only seen through that light. So I know that was a big impetus for this episode. For me, the other thing that I think I wanted to capture from my own experience working on a presidential campaign a few years before this was that feeling of a campaign really taking off and being in the bubble and the sort of both the unreality of it, people coming up to you and saying weird things and how... I look you, just like you. Exactly. How you just kind of can't, you know, which <laughs> I think probably that moment was uh, something I ripped off from the Woody Allen movie, Stardust Memories, actually. <laughs> but uh, but that, that feeling that just everything is weirdness and you are, you're no longer allowed to just be a normal person. Right. And, then, and then also, as we were talking about the, the, how you... You have to, you know, how good people for good reasons can kind of become what we don't like in politics. How the Jimmy Smith character in this episode is learning to almost robotically stick to a message. And, and um, that was another thing that, that I wanted to show. So 
I guess when I started working on the episode, it was just pulling together these different threads of you reach this point in a campaign. It's really about Matt Santos finding his voice. I mean, it's 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 that's kind of I think that's why it's called that. Healthcare, it's a fictional healthcare, healthcare. Yeah, but also in a bigger sense, you know, right. the, the, is he is he the Brown candidate? Is he somebody who? Is going to able to, going to be able to kind of rise above that label, but still has an eye on that community. Um, so that's a long rambling. Which I think comes across that he does have an eye on that community. Right. It's precisely for the eleven and thirteen year old kids of pe- former people that he knew, thinking that if the feds are coming, they're coming because they're trying to get you or you've been profiled. And he wants to show them. That he, that's why you know what in the end it's that I'm going to Texas no matter what. You know, I'm from Texas, and I'm going back there for those kids to see that they can reach this height too, right? I mean, that seems what you're yeah, absolutely yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So let's um, talk about the Veep finale. Um, so how, I, I've heard you talk a little bit about this, and of course, it wasn't your show at the start. You didn't craft it, but how you wanted the ending to answer to the beginning in a certain way and take up certain. I mean, even from Tom Hanks. I mean, there are certain things. I mean. Tom Hanks, I will simply say, worked out quite well. And uh, for those of you that are not diehard Veep fans, in the first episode of Veep ever, the pilot episode, they are having you know one of their myriad problems and are looking to hope that a story doesn't get picked up. And I can't remember the exact wording, but basically um, uh, Mike, at the time her press secretary, says something along the lines of like, well, maybe Tom Hanks will die, and basically the idea that that would help them out. And uh, at, when we were kind of coming around on the finale, um, I was very obsessed with the idea of, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll back it up a, a half a second, which is to say the reason for the future jump is, well, I'm a big fan of, I guess, presidential biographies and sort of like how history judges presidents. And there was a really interesting article actually just this last week about how that changes over time, about how, for example, Ulysses S. Grant, for example, has had spent a huge amount of time as sort of the terrible drunkard that basically, you know, like ruined America and was, you know, partially responsible for allowing radical reconstruction, all this kind of stuff happening. Um, and uh, and then basically off of the heels of these like two really great biographies in the last like two or three years, he's now top twenty, um, and it's just an interesting thing how these things happen. So anyway, I was a big believer that because this is a show about a president, you need to jump to the future uh, so that the ultimate word on her is history. Like no matter what happens, history will judge her. And so there was that concept of jumping into the future along with sort of, and this is sort of sad and unfortunate the sort of Farrah Fawcett phenomenon, which is Farrah Fawcett died, and then a few hours later, Michael Jackson died, and nobody remembered that Farrah Fawcett died. So there was this notion of what if she dies, and we really get a sense that she's become this historical footnote, um, and what if then, along with that, somebody better dies? And for a very long time, we were thinking about it being her unseen predecessor, uh, President Hughes, who we've never seen, but we had this idea, what if he dies the same day and basically, you know, eats her lunch? And in a very weird way, we had this idea that you, since you've never seen President Hughes, what if you finally saw him? And then at one point or another, we were sort of saying, well, then, and what if he's played by Tom Hanks? 
that would be a funny sort of the guy she's hated all these years sort of looks like Tom Hanks. And then um, Frank Rich, the wonderful columnist who was one of the producers of Veep and was always in the writer's room with us, remembered, quite honestly, the Tom Hanks joke. And it was like, well, what if just Tom Hanks dies? So anyway, that's where that did come from. I did, though, along with watching The West Wing, I did go back into the early season of Veep just to really remind myself about where these characters started and whatever. And it was really about, like, I mean, I hate to say over, you know, I don't want to say like I overanalyzed it, but I do think uh, ultimately it became about, like, what if she got this thing that for all these years we sort of never thought she would get? I will tell you as a creator, if you'd asked me before I did it, I would have said to you, she, she can never get the presidency because then the show's over. I guess I was technically right about that, but I didn't think she should ever get it, that she should never get the thing she wanted. And then ultimately, and again, a little of this connects to Trump also, and I hate to say this, was again, during that first year, you know, there were all those stories about how he had no, none of them thought he was going to win, himself included. And he was kind of freaked out having won a little bit. And like, there was a sense of like, he was sometimes like sitting upstairs in the living quarters, like just not quite sure what to do. And I don't know if any of that was true, but there were a lot of rumors like that. And so it became this idea of, well, what if she gets it? What's the cost? And what is obviously, what's it all about? And really it just became about what are the, what is the cost of politics? I mean, I guess that's what it really did become about. And ultimately, you know, on a show like this, I think on any kind of, you know, piece of writing, you know, you can say anything and you can have her do this bill and that bill. And I do think certainly betraying her daughter and her daughter's, you know, and Marjorie, the daughter's spouse, by passing an anti, you know, whatever. Uh, gay marriage. Uh, gay marriage. Uh, revoking, I should say. Yeah. Not anti. Revoking gay marriage. Obviously, that's bad. I think we can all agree that, that that's going to be a bad thing for her daughter. But but it's not it's not visceral. Like, we can acknowledge it's bad, but it doesn't. It doesn't punch in the face. What does she care about? What does she care about? And so ultimately, you kind of, you know, I hate to say it, you got to shoot Fredo. Um, and so it was really like kind of going like, what is the only thing you can argue that she's ever cared about? And so in some ways, the only steady relationship in her life was Gary. And so then the question becomes, Gary or the presidency? The presidency. And what is that cost? And so I think Gary represents a million things. And I think every candidate in the world the Gary is something else. But there, to be on that stage, to get that office, I do think there are sacrifices we make, and this is obviously a fictional representation of it. But that's what it became about for me, is the cost of, you know, dare I say, we've spent all these years kind of saying, she's mean, she's nasty, whatever, whatever. Well, what is she really prepared to do? And we saw what she was prepared to do, and it was sort of, Funny and horrible, which I guess is what our calling cards are. And but again, the cost—that's what it really became about. But it's also about by by going into the future. It's also, you know, that history has the last. Well, laugh was it worth it? Yes, legacy, exactly. There's no legacy. But by the way, she herself in that moment—and you can read it any way you want—but in that moment where she's in the White House, there, I think there's a half a second where, you know, clearly she is regretting every choice she made, and then, like her mother her, she packs it down and buries it in a little locked box and sticks it in the back and goes on with her day. But in those quiet moments, you realize she doesn't ever want to be alone again because every time she's alone, she's going to be just haunted by these, these, these actions. Um, and so, 
I don't know. I, I guess I like a little bit of as much as I love her, and obviously Julia brings a likability to a very right. unlikable character. I guess maybe there's a little bit of, for me, I guess the West Wing fan, there's a little bit of hope in that, number one, bad people suffer for their actions, mm. and number two, we eventually get Richard Splett and the three-state uh, three Israeli-Palestinian solution, right. Right. Um, which uh, we made up in the office, and then I was very pleased to see at some point a crazy person on Twitter going, yes, exactly what I've been saying for years, a three-state solution. And to this day, I'm still not quite sure what the third state is. But anyway, um, but I don't know. There is, I, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm being a little whatever, but I do think there is some hope that somehow the country endures Selena Meyer, and eventually we do get President Splat, and good things happen. I don't know, but... You know, it's, it's funny because at some point in the West Wing, I think it might have been in season six of the West Wing, we did, I think, a much less poignant, less effective version of the Matt Santos character firing some junior staffer who'd been with him for a while. And I remember talking about that storyline back then, and it was this idea that, unfortunately, if you're going to show that you can handle a job that big, right. you have to actually demonstrate that you're not sentimental and that you're willing to make very tough decisions that are sort of, you know, right for the nation, but bad for you personally, in its own way. I mean, you can argue, you know, that what Selena Meyer does is never good for the nation. <laughs> but I thought there was something very beautiful about that story that harkens back to Nixon firing Haldeman and, you know, Mike Dukakis firing John Sasso for political nerds who know who John Sasso is. You know, that sort of people who are willing to cut off their arm, you know, to, to, to do something that's supposed to be bigger than and, any and, and I think there is something, and again, this is very by design. We tried it a couple of different ways, but what I particularly liked was that Gary, and I'll say Tony uh, as the actor, but that Gary fights it, obviously, at first, but then when he sort of locks eyes with her and then she can't lock eyes with him, he now realizes instantly what she's done and dare I say, goes peacefully. Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, he is the second side of this very sort of weird relationship, but definitely is willing to take is willing to take the bullet, which I think is a sort of an interesting little side point too. I love yeah. that he shows up at the funeral. Right. I mean, to me, that was very moving. And shows up. I mean, again, I, I hope it comes through. At first, angry, like he is angry, but then it's almost again the dysfunction of their relationship. He kind of can't stay angry. And again, as we played with it, it initially was all sad. And it just was, it was fine. Don't get me wrong. It was sad as hell. But I think it's the anger that makes it interesting. Or at least the anger that then changes. But yeah. I don't know if you've read the Haldeman Diaries. You probably yes. have at some point. Incredible diary by Richard Nixon's chief of staff, who was, as we were mentioning, fired at the height of Watergate as Nixon was attempting to kind of, you know, just, you know, uh, uh, what's the word? Bail well, the water off the of, side of the ship. There was the moment in Watergate, I guess, before the tapes came out, where, having said it, there was no connection to the White House at right. first, and nobody was involved. Eventually, then started going. For those of you who don't remember, like it has come to my attention, some people right. in my office might have been involved. I still was not involved. Right. Like that was always still the the last line of defense. So first, nobody, and then, well, maybe that guy. So, yes. so Haldeman, yeah. the ultimate Nixon loyalist, in in, in some ways, a very yeah. similar. 
to, to who work. had a military soldier background and was very much, I think, doing yeah. the soldier thing. That's which yes. I do think there was an honor thing to it in a weird totally. way. Totally. Yeah. But do you, I don't know if you remember this point in in the Haldeman Diaries that I've never forgotten, which that reminded me of, or sort of him returning to the funeral reminded me of, which is um, Nixon used to have Haldeman after he would give a televised speech call around to reporters and to pundits and just see how it was playing back when you couldn't just look on Twitter and see. And um, Haldeman wrote in his diary that Nixon called him after giving the televised speech, firing him, and said, do you think you could check around and see how it's playing? And Haldeman just says in the diary, um, the president understood why I couldn't do that. And it's just this tragedy, this kind of So I guess the main tragedy. difference between Selena and Nixon is she would not have understood why <laughs> he couldn't make those phone calls and would have gotten very upset that he didn't. Yeah. But, but I want to say also, Patrice, that, and I'm sure you know, Dave would agree, that, that on the West Wing, um, sometimes that would be, you know, it wasn't about the moment we were living in. We would just read something in a book from the 1950s right. and it would give us a great idea for a storyline. It was just this whole subject area just felt so ripe. And these things recur. They're archetypes. These kinds of relationships were happening, you know, to, with the Caesars, I mean, you know. You know, the Trump of it all is just so big. I, I was telling some people earlier today, actually, um, there was a story I saw the other day, which was, uh, I don't know if you guys saw it, it was that. Uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the boot, boot, yeah, um, <laughs> boot edge edge, boot edge edge is uh, Mayor Pete. Um, his uh, chief of staff had um, tweeted something out that they're now being accused of was his chief of staff secretly contacting a pack because you're not allowed to directly contact the pack. And then the pack, it was something about Mayor Pete being a veteran, and then they began running um, a whole bunch of ads on Nevada, Nevada television um, about his being a veteran. And so it was this secret contact thing. And what, where I went instantly was just like, oh, what a great story. They're not allowed to talk, so they keep tweeting, but the pack isn't picking up the clues or is doing the wrong thing, like keeps misunderstanding the tweet and airing these very weird TV commercials that they think what she wants and whatever, That's whatever, great. whatever. That would be and I'm great. like, oh, wow, Veep season eight, except in its own weird way, that can't air again while someone is... I mean, that could have been a story yeah. in an episode, right. but like, right. it just, you know, it almost feels too small. Do you know what I mean? In a very unfortunate, weird way. But uh, I love that story. So, you know, someday. But yeah. By the way, I don't know if you, if you guys know this, but uh, this was something that Ted Cruz did when he ran in 2016. He, there was some super PAC that was helping him, and he posted hours of yes. footage of him of at like home hanging footage. out with his yes. family. Just like on a YouTube just put channel. It on YouTube so that then his pack, super pack could just find it with no coordination. But and other people it found it also. Of him yes. his family. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, David and Eli, for joining us. And thank you, everyone, Pleasure. for being here. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.